Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is a recovering international business workaholic. Her career spans academia, commercial real estate, international executive recruiting, and career transition coaching. Her college English creative writing major and professional roles requiring listening and shaping stories eventually pointed her back to her first love, writing fiction. She has homes on two islands, Manhattan and Martha's Vineyard, where she sings in a local chorus and fosters sustainability and food security. She and her husband have visited the Caribbean island of Nevis, where much of her novel is set annually since 1996 and otherwise share a hand-built life in view of the sea. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Alice Early. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Alice, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? Well, I am well over 50. I just turned 75. And I um, had been wanting to write fiction. I thought I would write fiction after I got out of college. Needing a job got in the way. And for many, many years, I didn't write any fiction at all. I wrote a lot of business materials for years and years and years. I moved to the vineyard in 1996, in part to be with the, my husband and in part to take care of my two aged parents who were here and were not doing very well. And so I set up a private practice in career transition coaching and I began to write a little bit. Um, but it took me 20 years really from those first noodles to having anything approaching a book. And along the way, both of my parents died. And when my mother died, I finally, I decided that I was not going to put more time into my day job. I was gonna take the energy that had gone into managing their care and, and then the estate into really trying to do more with writing. I joined a local writing group um, I, uh, with a very wonderful fiction writing teacher um, and I began to try to shape chapters and write something, which eventually I thought I was just doing it for myself. I wanted to get back into writing and see if I could even still do it. But I got the ambition to actually write a book set in and then the desire to write something that I could publish set in. And over a 10 year period, 
I began really to work hard on having a book. Um, it was a long journey. It was a huge amount of writing and rewriting. Most of what I took to my original writing class ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but it was fascinating to figure out and to learn a little bit more about the writing industry and the publishing industry as I went along. So I was ready, I thought, to find an agent. I would thought I was ready several times. I was wrong. So having gone back, done more editing, whatever, I finally did go into the agent world. Um, I got an agent in the end of 19, uh, of 2018. And we went out into submission and took that took a while. And I signed with my publisher, She Writes Press in the very beginning of 2019, 2019, and the book came out in April of 2020. Lovely timing. Um, so my, it took me all of that time. I was 72 probably um, when to, when I finally had a book in my hands, and the last at least the last 10 years of that time I had tr been trying to get there. Well, She Writes Press is a great place to land because they're a very well-respected hybrid press. And I've interviewed many of the women who uh, just rave about it. So it, it must create a wonderful community of writers there. It's it's a, it's a very uh, broad service. And it's what I wanted because by then, of course, the ambition to have a book and have it out in the world had also set in. And I wanted distribution. I wasn't trying to do a any kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a vanity piece. I really wanted a real book and I wanted people to read it. And I really wanted to be able to talk to readers about it and see what they thought. So um, the, I, the fact that she writes had not just a, a editorial and design. I, I mean, I, I, I love the cover of the book that they gave me. I really do. And um, when I want they I got great service that way, but the distribution has mattered to me a tremendous amount because I have a lot of friends who self-published and they really have to take it to the bookstores and plead with them to sell a book. And I I don't I've not had that problem. You love the sea, as many of us do, and you live life on three islands, Manhattan and Martha's Vineyard and Nevis. Tell us about how you began going to Nevis and go every year from 1996, I believe. Yeah, we started then. And except for missing during COVID when we couldn't go, we've gone every year and we'll be headed back there in February. Um, my cousin, who lives here on Martha's Vineyard, um, had a house in Nevis. And when I was still in New York, um, I didn't move here until 99, so... 96, um, Larry and I were commuting and that was getting old, but I had a week's vacation from my job in New York and we wanted to go someplace really relaxing. So my cousin said, well, you know, go to my house. He had, was building a house. It wasn't finished. It had a shell. It had running water because it was fit, uh, attached to the government water, which is a thing that happens in my book. Um, but it didn't have electricity yet. So it was kind of like going to a big concrete tent. And we stayed there for a week. And because there was no electricity, 
it really slows you down when you have to light a candle or take a flashlight or carry a lamp, a candle from one room to another. We had all the things that I use in my book. We had candles, we had Aladdin lamps. Um, one of them did in fact have a dead gecko wound up around the mantle of the lamp. Um, there were just things that I began to stockpile from that experience and I fell in love with Nevis. Um, Nevis is a beautiful island. It's a highly varied island. It's volcanic, so it's a big cone. A lot of the uh, of the activity is around the sort of skirt of that cone. Um, there's mist at the top often. There's a rain cloud up there, rainforest. It's but it's it's just varied. This one side of the island is lush and tropical, and the other side is like a savanna, grasslands where they raise cattle. Um, that's the windward side, very very windy, very dry. The other side is very lush and, you know, is, is, is just, that's where the resorts are. That's where the long beach is. So it's like almost two islands, one side to the other. And I just thought it was magical. I, not only did I really relax, but I just sort of felt in tune with the place, which happens to a lot of people, I think, when they go there. So we started going every year. And as we, once I moved here and had my own practice and my husband was, is just retired from being a self-employed fine furniture maker. And we had some flexibility. So we began going longer, two weeks, three weeks. Um, but we went every year and I would write there in the beginning, I would write there and then I would home, come home and put the yellow pad in the drawer and never touch it again till the next year. But I was constantly making notes about what I saw, what I felt, what I smelt, the, the flowers, the, all the fauna, the flora, the, com the, the food, the customs, the history. And the history of Nevis is very rich and very cruel. It was the major sugar island, um, out produced many, many other islands in the Caribbean and was a real prize and therefore changed hands from the English to the French to the, you know, back and forth as Spanish. It was, it was um, constantly uh, a prize for people to covet. And it just, all of that is just still steeped in the, in the mountain, in the, in the sea, in the area. Um, so I just, uh, you know, can't wait to get back there every year. Well, I can tell your love of it. And it was certainly a major source of inspiration because it influenced your first book. Yeah. I, I mean, people say, why did you set it there? And I sort of couldn't think of setting it anywhere else. And then I decided that my main character was not a Nevisian, was not a British expat, although there are many people there who are British expats. I wanted her to be something else. And I decided she had to be Scottish because she had to have a real love of the land, a real love of history, a love of family. And she had to be tough and stubborn. And um, I wanted her to be in, very interested in Scottish politics because Nevis has a secessionist activity that's been going on for a while. Part of Nevis' history that fascinated me is that at one point the British lumped it together with Anguilla, an island we also visit, which is completely different. It's a coral island, flat. And St. Kitts, which is the other island that with Nevis is the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis. So they are still a country, 
whereas Anguilla is a British overseas territory. It did not ever isolate itself from the crown in quite the same way. But Nevis and St. Kitts have had a push-pull relationship. And when Anguilla was part of the threesome, it was just not fitting together at all. So there was a history of Anguilla succeeding, which it did, and then Nevis trying to secede from its connection with St. Kitts because St. Kitts has all the money, gets all the tax dollars and doesn't spend it or didn't spend it back in Nevis. So Nevis was feeling cheated. And there were a number of people who felt we should do, we should get be on our own. And a lot of people who felt at the same time, this rock is too small to be a country. And all of those things were true. So I was just fascinated by that. And in Scotland, there is a devolution movement of Scottish secession from the from the UK. And I wanted her to be involved in that and to have that get her in trouble when she moved to Nevis and thought that she could impose her Scottish politics, if you will, on a place that she did not understand at all. I think that's a great tie-in for you to use that history. It really is fascinating. I had to learn a lot about it um, because while I've been to Nevis many, many times, I have to confess I've never been to Scotland and I didn't want to do it a disservice in my depiction of Scotland. So I I really did a deep dive in in uh, history and um geography and everything I could learn about Scotland, roe deer, everything, so that I could try and get that part as right as I could. Well, if you decide to do an audio book, maybe a a Scottish narrator would be a great twist there. Actually, I have released an audio book. And I have to tell you, the casting of the two narrators, the Scottish narrator who is in sort of the voice of Els, my main character, she had to do most of the book, including, of course, all the parts that are set in Scotland. And then we had a Caribbean narrator who read all the Caribbean voices and the dialects, whether they were men, women from Jamaica, from Nevis, from wherever, Dominica, wherever they were from. She read all of the Caribbean accents. And it was very, very hard to find voice actors. Nobody would do the whole thing. They said, that's too hard. I can't do that range of voices and I couldn't do it. So we finally found this um, two, two people, um, two women. I think they're wonderful. Their accents are very authentic. Some people may find them a little difficult to understand. A little bit like trying to do upstairs, downstairs, if you're having trouble with the accents until you get it, you know, until you get it used to your ear used to it. Um, but I, I love them both. I think they did a great job. I love that process of choosing narrators for our books. When I requested a Southern accent, you wouldn't believe the gosh awful accents that I received. And I said, that doesn't sound like me. (laughs) That's not real. And, you know, my, my Scottish woman is a Scottish woman. And, you know, I think a lot of people were trying to make it sound Scottish, but it wasn't, it wasn't coming off. Well, how did writing this first book change your process of writing or did it? I don't think I have a process. And so I don't know whether it did or not. Um, I was writing in between everything else. I don't have a daily practice. 
I finally now, as I was telling you before we started, I have a, a, a writing space in which I sit now, which is quiet and separate and has a door. I wrote the entire first book sitting in the corner of the dining room, which was where two offices and two sets of phones and answering machines and people were coming to the door. And it was concentration became something that I had to really learn. Um, and I did it in snatches because it was in and around caring for my parents, taking care of my clients. Um, everything else came first. And one of my writing friends here told me something that I've cherished ever since. She said, I have to treat my book like a lover. I have to sneak away to spend time with my book. And that's how I felt for many of those years was that I, it was the thing I most wanted to do, but it was the thing that always ended up on the bottom of the pile. How I got through it, I, I, I don't know. It was hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work and then revision and more revision and all of that. But I wanted it out. I wanted it done. You know, I got, I was so far into it. I wasn't going to let it go, but I just didn't have a practice. And I still struggle to have uh, a, a sense of validation. I think all writers have some level of imposter syndrome. I sure do. Um, I think having a book out in the world and having people talk to me about it one goal I had was not necessarily to be a bestseller, but not to be embarrassed by showing my face in the local grocery store. I wanted my neighbors to feel as though I had joined the fraternity, you know, sorority, if you will, of writers on the vineyard, some of whom are really quite famous and deservedly so. But I wanted to feel like a real writer in my own town. And I did get that. Um, but still, there are days when I think, I'm not writing, therefore I'm not a writer. Um, and it's it's really difficult for me. So I'm still, with my second book, which is at least three quarters done, I'm still writing episodically. I'm still writing when I can. And as a result, I often have times when I don't write for days or even weeks. Um, it's painful, but that's how I do it. And then I get buckled down and I, I work great if I have a deadline. I've always been able to write to deadline and to size. So I do that when I have to. Um, but lately I haven't had to. And so it, again, is what I fit in when I've finished all the things that I feel obligated to do. Um, I don't recommend it. Well, my my process became quicker, I think. I, I think I was able to write more quickly when I finished that first book. I, I took so long on it. I was like you. It lived in my head for, you know, 20, 30 years before I started putting it down on paper. So it was a very slow process, even when I started, you know, uh, typing in into the computer but the second book came much more quick much more quickly than the first book well my second book is set in 2017 but um i started writing it when i was in submission because like a lot of writers i couldn't do anything about the first book i couldn't touch it couldn't change it and i needed an outlet and i started an idea percolated up and i began to write 
um, in 2019 a little bit. And then, of course, the process, as you, I'm sure you know, of getting a book out and getting through the publication and all the galley proofs and things, that was very time consuming. And then, I, then of course, I was preparing for a launch that would have been in 2020, but didn't happen because it was right really in the worst time of, of the beginning of lockdown. Nobody knew how to Zoom at that point. And so I had to completely revamp my thoughts about how to get my book out into the world. So um, I, I, don't, I won't say I made much progress during that time. It is a lot further along for having started in 2019 than my first book. That, so I am writing much more quickly. And I'm also, I developed a process of keeping track. I don't, I'm just going to start to use Scrivener, I think. But I was used to writing a lot with files in the computer, and I devised a system. And when it came to a massive revision, because when I first put all my pieces together, I had over 200,000 words, and it had to be less than half of that. So I spent a long revision cutting it in half and cutting out all kinds of things and compressing things. I had to keep track of what was still in the book, because I sometimes couldn't remember that. So I devised an elaborate um, Excel spreadsheet method for that, which has served me very well in the second book. Because as, as soon as I write a scene now, that goes into my spreadsheet. And it, I can change, of course, I, as I change the scene, I have to change that entry, but I can keep track of the flow. I set up the dates. I know that I'm you know, like I'm not writing something and saying it's December when in fact the chopper before was in May and I didn't make that transition or whatever. I'm I'm much more methodical about keeping track. And it helps me both in the writing and in the revision. So I do have kind of a roadmap that works for me. And that has made this second book, which is a very complicated structure, it has made it much, much easier to keep track of that. So I'd say that I did learn a lot about the mechanics of being a writer. I can't say that my practice has improved, but my my writing when I get to sit down and do it, I know where I am better, much better than I did before. Well, that's great to be so organized and to be able to keep up because I would say in the first of my book that she had blue eyes and at the end of the book, she had brown eyes, you know, so it is great to be able to track all of that. And But 200,000 words, you had a series of three books. It Well, it I wasn't thinking of it that way, but I originally began with two storylines. I love two point of view books, sometimes two timeline books. I love those things when they're they're separate and then they come together in certain key ways. And that's what I set out to do. So my main character is this 33-year-old Scottish woman. And the other character was a local Navesian fisherman. And I was, I'd written a huge amount of their two stories, and they began to overlap. And I realized two things. First, A, I had way too much. I had to compress a lot. And secondly, I realized that I was uncomfortable with it and I had no business trying to be in the head of a Navesian fisherman. I just thought that was a cultural appropriation that was going to get me in trouble. So he stayed in the book. He's a very important character in the book, but he's not a point of view character. And I decided the only way that I could pare this book down was to 
really limit myself to a single point of view. So nothing in the book happens that isn't Els, Els Gordon is the name of the character. It isn't something she thought or something she saw, something she witnessed or something somebody told her. So she is the funnel through which everything passes in the book. And that kept me honest. But it also let it made it be possible for me to write the book from her perspective. And I realized that she is an, she is, uh, an expat. She is somebody who comes to a place she doesn't understand. And because she doesn't understand it, how she tries to make sense of it gets her in trouble. And I wanted to make sure that I was always in her head so that the trouble she got into would be the trouble that sometimes people get into when they move to a place they don't understand. I live on a resort island. I know how people overlay their Disney-esque thought of, if I just lived here, everything would be perfect. And it is so wrong because every place has its problems. And if you move, you know, there's a quote in the book that, you know, um, if you cross the sea, you know, your troubles come with you. Um, I mean, you, you don't, you leave yourself, your perceptions, your biases, you don't leave any of that behind. And the place you go has all of those things entrenched in it. And so you have to be careful about your expectations of a place that you first experience as paradise or as uh, magical as people think sometimes the vineyard is, which is true. But it also has a, a very fascinating underbelly, as does Nevis, as does everywhere else. And I wanted to be true to that and to her mistaken understanding of that. Um, and so staying in her point of view made it easy, easier to cut, 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 cut. Um, people have said, am I writing a sequel? The answer is no. My second book is not a continuation of that story. People have asked me, please do write a sequel. I'm not done with these characters. I really want to know more about what happens to them. And I kind of know where that might go. But I want to finish this second book. Um, and then maybe I'll go back and see about doing something that would happen to these characters quite a few years after I left them. Um, I haven't committed to that, but there's material for sure. I've, I've spoken to a lot of authors who love their minor characters so much that they wrap a book around them in the future. So you might have those great characters in that book that you might want to tell their story as well. Well, I love telling their stories as it was. Tried very hard to make each of them a real character, not a cardboard. But my main, one of my main characters, of course, is the ghost. And one of the main issues of this book is, is the ghost going to be liberated to leave this world because he's made amends with the help of the main character, Els? Um, is he going to be able to leave? And he does at the end of the book. So he can't be a character in a sequel in quite the same way, except through flashback, perhaps. But there's so much going on with the minor characters that... Um, and Els's love story is just getting off the ground at the end of, of the first book. And her rapprochement with her mother is just getting off the ground at the end of the book. So the main issues that were keeping her from growing and changing and sort of having a life 
are beginning to shift and she's beginning to move forward and she could continue to move forward and there could still be a lot going on. So it would be fun to do, um, much less to the 20 years to write, I would hope. Um, but I, you know, I'm not sure. They say that it takes a series, at least three books for us to start really earning out what we need to. So that would be a great consideration since you have so many people clamoring for it. You know, once we have a fan of our book, they they gobble it up and then they want more, more, more. Yeah, well, I should have thought of that. But see, that's one of the many things I didn't know when I started. This was a very DIY project for me. I just wanted to figure out if I could write a book, but I wasn't thinking about a number of things that I learned in the in the process of trying to find and first an agent and then and then a publisher is that I was writing a cross genre book because I didn't know any better. I mean, this is a book that is women's fiction. It's sort of upmarket. It's kind of on the edge of literary in some ways, but it's got elements of romance, even though it's not a romance. It's got elements of paranormal, but it's not typically that. It's got um, mystery elements in it, but it's not a mystery. So it doesn't follow any genre, but it's got pieces of all that stuff. And that made it extremely difficult for an agent to want to pick up and for a a publisher to want to pick up. They're sort of like, I like it, but I don't know what to do with it. I wouldn't know where to shelve it. Well, the readers don't care. You know, they love the cross-genre. The first award that it won was cross-genre. I was thrilled. But it's 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 it makes it very hard. I'm not doing that the second time around. You know, there are, there are just so many things about had I known that I, I should be thinking in terms of more than one book out of that material, I would have cut it up differently. Um, I just wanted to get the first book out of my head and onto the page and into the world. And I didn't know what I was doing. So now I don't know how many books I've got in me at 75. You just have to wonder these things. Um, I want to finish the second book. I, I have loads of ideas. I'm planning to write some shorter fiction because I want to be able to finish more things. Um, but I, you know, I, I wish I'd known. And then I probably would have done a couple of things. One, put the audiobook out very soon after the main book. And second, write a, write a, a sequel right away and have that coming along quickly. So while people were still loving the first book, they could dig right into a second. But th- I didn't know that. And um, now I do, but it's a little late. It's never too late. I'm interviewing people in their 70s, 80s and 90s, and they're turning out beautiful work. So you have plenty of time for as many sequels as you would like. Well, your lips to God's ears, as they say. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the passage you've brought to share today and then read a few paragraphs so we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Okay. Um, I've picked a short paragraph, just a a very short section. Um, This is uh, on page 93. It's a little bit into the book. it's a it's a place where while Els has actually met the ghost, the first time she meets him, she doesn't know who he is. He's a bit of a shapeshifter. And she doesn't and she doesn't associate this person that she's meeting with what she's heard about the ghost. Um, and she hasn't actually seen the ghost in his ghostly form. So this piece takes place 
when she's um, bought the house that comes with its resident ghost, a jumbie in local um, parlance, um, she has heard about this person, this departed person, who may or may not be a suicide. Um, he died, fell in the sea or, or jumped in the sea during a hurricane and drowned, they think, but he disappeared during a storm. And so there's a lot of, of mystery sort of swirling around him. But she bought the house and she was trapped there during a hurricane, a real hurricane, which was Hurricane Lenny that happened in 1999 when the book is set. And she um, has been sort of riding out this hurricane, it boarded up in her house um, where there's no power and the water's not running because he didn't pay his bills. So this is when she senses something, she's in bed and she senses something. She smelled cigar. When she opened her eyes, the darkness was velvety, absolute. Her tongue was furry with rum. Oh, by the way, she drinks quite a bit. She listened. The storm had moved on, but she sensed that its enveloping, terrifying presence had been replaced by another presence, equally formless. A cigar tip flared, and in its faint light, she thought she saw a man's face, disembodied, floating above the foot of the bed. She sat up, fumbled for the lantern, and struck a match, but she couldn't light the mantle and succeeded only in singeing her fingertips. She shook the match out and tossed it away from the bed. In its brief flare, the face was all beard and dark eyes. I just had to see if it was you, the man said, who bought the house. His voice was raspy, barely above a whisper. She took in a sharp breath. She struck another match and managed to light the lantern. He seemed to be gelling, but cast no shadow. He was wearing a rumpled linen shirt. The expression in his eyes was apprehensive, needy. She grabbed the putter. Who the hell are you, she said. It all depends on you now, he said. How'd you get in? You let me in. Her mind raced through the house, thinking of ways in, ways out, something left unlocked. She checked the bedside table, no phone. She remembered phones in the study and next to the big leather chair. Hurricane, lines down. He swept the cigar to his wrist, waist and bowed. I apologize for my appalling lack of manners, he said. I thought it okay to help myself to one of these, but I should have asked the lady's permission to smoke. He examined the glowing ash. I needed this, he said, to steady my nerves. He took an ashtray off the dresser and rolled the cigar in it, sculpting the ash into a neat mound. His eyes glittered as if he was drunk or drugged. I've got more at stake here than you do. Get out. Don't banish me, sweet, he said. He blew three smoke rings and watched them wobble and dissipate. He looked to be in his 40s and was tanned and weathered, with dark curls falling over his forehead and pleading eyes. I came to welcome you, but I've blown that completely. My charm isn't what it once was, obviously. A gust of wind shook the palms. The surf raged. I should have let you settle in first, he said. He pulled on the cigar and exhaled toward the ceiling. As Wordsworth says, I was given so much of earth, so much of heaven, and such impetuous blood. She tightened her grip on the putter. I just can't get the hang of this. He stepped back until he was standing in the doorframe. Khaki shorts barefoot. All the rules have changed. 
He held the ashtray in his laced fingers like a precious vessel and looked at the ceiling. The smoke curled up his torso and wreathed his head. When he looked back at her, his eyes had lost the glitter. They bored into her in a way that was familiar, seductive. I should be good at befriending a woman as impetuous as I, a woman who glows in the sunset and dances in the rain. I was foolish to think we could take up where we left off. The face and voice were vaguely familiar, his gaze like a remembered caress. When have we met, she asked. I was too tired tonight to get back to that younger me, he said. This is the best I could do. At least I'm in my so-called prime. He shifted the ashray to his left hand and pulled a small bouquet of blue flowers from the waistband of his shorts. He took a step closer. Stay where you are, she said, but she lowered the putter. Periwinkles, he, has, he said. Violette de sorcier. Protection against sp spirits, if you want it. He kissed the nosegay and tossed it onto the foot of the bed. Some of them can be real pests, or so I hear. He bowed again. See you, he said, his gaze on the flowers. I hope. He looked at her imploringly, saluted, and stepped into the hall, leaving behind a wisp of smoke. Oh, wow. That's so intriguing. So that just shows kind of how much fun I had writing Jack, the, the ghost, um, because he's my ghost. I did. I played with I knew a lot about Jumbie lore and it's woven into the book about how other people are afraid of Jumbies and what they tell Els is that, you know, it's like to have a Jumbie and how you get rid of them. But my ghost is a very corporeal ghost. She can see him. Others can see him. There is a, a superstition that if you are what they call um, receptive um, and she's receptive because she's Scottish and they had ghosts in her castle and whatever um, she's receptive and a few other people are and they can see Jack but he can be in the room and other people don't have any idea that he's around they just can't experience him because they're not receptive but I made him as much of a pain in the butt as, as a ghost as he would have been when he was a, a live man you know, he's impetuous, he's needy, he's pleading, he's, um, he's pushy, um, he's vague, you know, he's very vain. And, you know, so he was just so much fun to write. And uh, in that piece, she's just getting a, a tiny glimpse of how seductive he thinks he is. Um, this is a love story, but it's not between the ghost and Els. It's between Els and the ghost's friend. Um, but uh, they do strike a relationship. They are, it's testy. Um, they nudge each other, but they there is a lot of affection in it, but that's not the love story in the book. Sounds great. I'm going to get that audio book and hear that accent. Mm -hmm. What about publicity? You know, we writers love to write. We don't like to promote ourselves. Have you found anything that's worked for you? Um, I, for all the public speaking that I did as a businesswoman uh, and for all of the marketing experience that I've had, I find it every bit as hard as every other writer to push myself out there. Um, I, I couldn't do a launch. I had a launch all pulled together. I had some wonderful bookstores um, waiting to host me. I was really looking forward to it, but I didn't have it because COVID shut everything down. So 
I had to figure things out. Um, what has been a lot of fun for me has been gr book groups. Um, I love those conversations. I've had a number of them in person here at the Vineyard, but I've also had an, a lot of Zoom calls and they've been enormous fun. Everywhere from Calgary to the South, uh, all over the East Coast, um, Chicago. And it, it's just been really, really fun to, to meet with, write, with readers somehow. Um, I've done some pop-ups, um, you know, little books, you know, book, put books in pop-up holiday shows and things. Those have done very well. Um, but I had a publicist. I couldn't tell that it made any difference. Um, I know they tried, but it, they were trying to retool themselves with everything that they did that used to work, didn't work anymore in the beginning of COVID. Um, so I, I don't think that anything, any one thing that I did was actually very successful. I did force myself to use Facebook. I joined a lot of Facebook groups. Um, Facebook writer groups were not only helpful in learning the ropes, but just enormously encouraging. And I made a lot of friends that way. Um, so now if I wanted a blurb, I think it'd be easy to get one. And um, I could do, I've done, I did a bunch of joint, joint readings with people. And that was helpful because both of our audiences then would, would tee off of that. Um, so collaboration, I think, helped me as much as anything. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just still lousy with, with social media compared to other people. I can't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to do TikTok to save myself. And I've done a little bit of Instagramming, but I'm not particularly visual. I'm a writer. I don't do a lot of photographs. I don't do reels. Um, I just have not learned that stuff. Maybe I'm just stubborn and stupid, but I haven't done it. So anything where I can write and post, I have done. Um, I've done a bunch of guest appearances. I've done little, you know, a few little takeovers and that kind of thing. That's been fun. Um, but I can't, I can't really connect any particular activity with book sales. Um, I'm delighted to have sold out of the second printing of the book. Um, so we have to go back on press now. Um, and, you know, that was another goal. Just, just print as many as you think you can sell and sell them all. And, and we did. Um, so that, that was very gratifying, but, but they've been drips and grabs here and there. There's no pattern. Um, the paper book has done better than the ebook. The, um, the audio book is really not very well known. I, I'd love people to try that and let me know what they think. So I, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer for that question. I wish I did. Well, I think it's very typical answer because most of us don't want to promote ourselves. And even those of us who use a lot of social media, you know, it it's more of combining lots and lots of, of things. And I don't think it, there is any one thing unless you get a, a book bub deal. I've had a few um, international ones, but no U.S. ones. And I think that that one really pushes the needle some, but there's usually not one, one particular item that's going to help us a lot. Since you're interviewing uh, people who are older writers, do you find that we as a group are having more trouble 
getting into the social media world than some of the younger people for whom it's a native thing. Absolutely. Um, my young my young friends who are writers are just jumping into this stuff and they're just completely comfortable with it. And to me, it's it's just a very tough, tough learning curve. And I guess one that I'm more resistant to than I should be. I find that to be true. I think it's it's more difficult because we haven't had a device in our hands since we were toddlers, like most of the young folks do today. <laughs> you know, remember when you give us a telephone to play with? You know, yes. Little- a, di- a dial telephone would be great in our hands again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Alice, as always, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? Well, I think your tagline is totally true, that it's never too late. It's I know I was well over 50 when I got serious about trying to write this book. And... Um, I come from a a family of people who live to be quite old. I'm hoping that's my good luck as well. Both of my parents were almost 98 when they died. And though their quality of life wasn't great for the last few years, they had a very long, very full run. And I'm hoping for that. Um, And I, you know, I, I, I think that life experience, I had a ton of it when I started writing. I had worked all those years. I'd had several careers already. Um, I'd been a woman who, you know, way before there were women doing a bunch of things. I was the only woman or the the first in so many situations. I just had a lot of scars and I had a lot of, you know, knowledge about the way the world works. That all helps. It helps in everything you do as a writer. So I would say if you have ideas, you know, you have those ideas. They're your ideas. Nobody else can write those ideas. And we need to hear from you. So I think I would just give older writers every bit of encouragement to just do it. You don't have to try to publish. If you decide you want to publish, as I did, when you're well into the writing, that's fine. But I didn't set out thinking I wanted to be a published writer. I set out thinking I wanted to just write something to prove that I could write something. And that was a big accomplishment in itself. But to be able to be an author, I realized this was sort of my life's dream that I had to put aside because I had to go get a job. And now I've got that. And that doesn't stop me either. I still have a lot of ambition. And I expect to be 90 and still having ambition, maybe for somewhat different things, but I don't think it goes away. So I just think it's really important to to just do it. Um, I'm a bad one to give that advice since a lot of times I don't just do it, but I actually write something every day. It's just not on my book, my main project. I always have little things going. And, you know, whether you just journal, whatever you do, I think it. I think it's really valuable to put your perspective on the world down somehow and then see what happens with it. See what you make of it. See what you want to do with it. I had the best time thinking up characters. It's just fun. You know, why deny yourself that fun? So I don't know. Don't be afraid. I guess that's what I tell you. That's great advice. You've certainly proved yourself and reached your personal idea of success because you are a published author. So we congratulate you on that. And I agree that that those of us with life experiences certainly need to 
to leave those as legacies in this world to our families and friends and people who don't know us, who are going to pick up that book and, and love it as much as you loved writing it. So thank you so much for being with us today, because now we can count you among our authors over 50. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. I appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.